And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. It's always great to catch up with my old friend John Favreau, now of Pod Save America fame, but my great collaborator during the Barack Obama years. We sat down at South by Southwest in front of an audience to talk about the state of the progressive movement, media, and where the Pod Save America franchise might go next. Well, first of all, John Favreau, it's good to always good to be with you and here at South by Southwest. I should explain, because we do have a live audience here, that uh, John Lovett had been scheduled for quite a while. I am steeped in everything John Lovett because I like to prepare for these things. I got up uh, in the middle of the night, as men of a certain age do, uh, <laughs> and uh, when I, I thought I'd just check my phone when I got back into bed and uh, got the word that John had fallen ill, had to go to the hospital. We're confident he's going to be okay. okay. Uh, but uh, so I'm really grateful to my friend John Favreau for uh, pitching in here. I, have, I do have questions, as I told him, about what it's like to be uh, a uh, short, gay, Jewish math nerd at Syosset High School in Long Island that probably don't apply anymore. I mean, I spent enough time with him. I could, I could tell you all the answers, <laughs> tell you all the jokes. But, and I should also point out that, the, uh, that John Favreau was also the 11th uh, Axe Files, so there are people who are faithful listeners of the Axe Files who may, uh, who may be up to date on the history of John Favreau, but I just want to... Am I the first repeat re- guest? Review. Um, I think there maybe was one other. Okay, I just no? I wanted that title. No, no, time. you're the first, yes. you're the first repeat guest. Perfect. Uh, as you for. should be. <laughs> you should know that um, on my desk at the University of Chicago, behind my desk, sits this photo of John Favreau and the White House speechwriters that was taken for GQ for a story that I don't think ever ran, nope, actually. never But ran. at least we got, got a good picture out yeah, of it. No. And it's a wonderful photo, and I keep it there because the most, um, really some of the most rewarding time I spent in the White House was uh, with the speechwriters. And I, I, I was privileged every day to have the forerunner of Pod Save America in my office as we talked about uh, the things that uh, the president needed to address and uh, where, where these speeches should go and so on. And, and um, so it's always a great thrill to catch up with my, uh, my old friend. Now, you come from a political family, but not the kind of political family that people would have expected. Yeah, my, um, my grandfather, uh, was a Republican state representative in New Hampshire, um, and uh, my dad's dad, and my dad's one of nine kids um, from Manchester, New Hampshire, and he's one of the only ones that ended up a Democrat. So uh, how did that happen? Uh, Fell he, on his head. He met my mother. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my mother is a Dem- you know she's from um, Massachusetts, and her family is uh, very Democratic. A bunch of Greeks from Lowell. Big Dukakis fans. How did that go over with the uh, other side of the clan? You know, 
all these years later, I think we've converted like half of my aunts to Democrats <laughs> or independents now. Now, so. but this must have been that sort of old New England republicanism, right? Not the kind of republicanism that we right. see today. Yeah, no, and also it was a part-time gig. He's an insurance salesman, and then, you know, he was in the state house once in a while. Um, but it was, it was that kind of New England republicanism. I mean, I, I interned for a state senator. It was my, one of my first jobs in the Massachusetts State House who was a Republican, a state senator from, because he had graduated from Holy Cross. So was politics a big thing in your house? You know, it was a big thing. It was something that we always talked about. Like, I, I can remember during the 92 campaign watching all the debates in the living room, sitting with my dad, and he was, like, telling me what was happening and getting me all excited about it. I can remember my mom's side of the family getting really excited about um, Michael Dukakis running in 88. So I had these memories of it. It wasn't like there were, you know, these big debates. But it's like Massachusetts politics is like sort of a spectator sport. You yeah. Know? I'm um, from Chicago. I know what that's yeah, like. It's the yeah, same, it's the same thing. Yeah. There's, you gossip about it. You talk about yeah. it. And so that's, um, that's sort of how I grew up. Did, and you went to Holy Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's sort of where you, yeah, your political awakening happened. Look, I I was raised Catholic, and um, when, but like sort of the Catholic experience I had as a kid was going to church and um, getting a guilt trip for not coming to church more. <laughs> um, and it was you know very, we Jews have that thing too. Yeah, no, it's the same in the Catholic yeah, Church. Yeah. And it was very much, you know, it was a suburb of Boston and, you know, middle class suburb. And it was very much about, you know, I learned that religion and Catholicism is about, like, individual salvation. I go to Holy Cross, not because it was a religious school, just because that's where I happen to get in, got some like, half scholarship there. And it's a Jesuit school. Yeah. And the emphasis in a Jesuit school and the Jesuit, you know, part of the religion is social justice and sort of our collective salvation. And so I had this educational experience there that really made me it sort of connected with my interest in politics as you know a spectator sport and now it felt like there was real meaning and I worked in the community in Worcester a lot. Do you have a connection with your Catholicism now? I mean you got a pope who's a Jesuit which and who's yeah who I love preaching the gospel that you yeah I mean it's at, a, uh, I'm not um it, I would say that it informed it informs a lot of my political beliefs it's why i care a lot about economic justice and social justice um i don't i still haven't found a you know a a church that i feel like i want to go to all the time um but it's something that's always sort of in the back of my mind and you uh you you interned for john Kerry. i did yeah so holy cross has an internship program you can go to dc for a semester and um, I ended up in John Kerry's office, and it was 2002, and it was right when he was planning a run for the presidency. And somehow I ended up in his press office as an intern. And so I sat with his communications director and his press secretary, and his political director was there, and um, I sort of caught the bug. And they were all talking about 2004 and how he was preparing for it. And um, his communications director, David Wade, allowed me to do some writing and he said you can I started with constituent letters and then he let me write an op-ed or two and when I went back to Holy Cross for my senior year I was completely hooked and I emailed Wade like once a month yeah can I have this job it's hard to leave when they're about to embark on a presidential right and I so all I wanted to do was work on that campaign and 
the night before I graduated, um, I had no job, and I was, <clears throat> was about to give the valedictorian speech the next day, but I was jobless. And uh, Wade calls me, and he's like, okay, here's the good news. Um, we have a job for you. You can come down to DC, but uh, we can't pay you anything. And I was like, <laughs> and then he was like, I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> he's like, but it's not going to be too much. It's not going to be too smart, much. Actually. And it was not. Yeah. yeah, it made me feel like yeah, exactly. the $24,000 right. oh, was a lot of money yes. then. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I moved down to DC and I joined that, I joined that campaign. I got to remember that. It's a good trick. Strategy. It's yeah. a good trick. Yeah. And uh, we've talked about this before, and I think we talked about it on the last podcast, my first encounter with you. But for the benefit of these folks, we should review. Yes, yeah, so I was, uh, my job at the 2004 Democratic Convention in Boston was to um, be backstage. I was one of the junior speechwriters, and I was supposed to review all the speeches of all the speakers to make sure they were, um, they reflected the message of the Kerry campaign to the extent that there was a message of the Kerry campaign. We'll talk about that uh, in a second. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and the chief speechwriter calls me one day, and he's on the road with Kerry, and he's like, hey, you got to check out the Obama speech. And I was like, yeah, no, I, I read the Obama speech. It's amazing. He's like, yeah, there's a line that, uh, that the boss wants to use that's in that speech. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, cool. Why are you talking to me about it? And he's like, um, you need to go uh, take that line out of Obama's speech. <laughs> and so I walk down the hall, and Obama's, uh, you guys are practicing the speech for the very first time. And I walk Yeah, we should point out, I was there because I was his consultant. Mm -hmm. Robert Gibbs, who had been in the... Uh, carry campaign and left right. uh, under uh, unpleasant circumstances right. <laughs> uh, was his press secretary. Yeah. And we're standing there. He's about to practice the speech. And I walk in and I was like, okay, Gibbs will save me. Because I was Gibbs's assistant on the Kerry campaign when he was there. So I go up to Gibbs and I'm telling him the story. And he's like, would you go? And he's like, I'm not telling him. You go tell him. So I, uh, I walk up to Obama, and he, he like comes within an inch of my face and is like looking down at me, and he's like, are you trying to tell me I have to take out this line? And I, I don't remember what I said. I think I blacked out for a few I remember seconds. what you looked like. You looked like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> I was so scared. And then this very nice man, David Axelrod, walks over to me, and he said, son, let's walk outside for a second, and, and we'll rewrite the line, and we'll fix it. And that's yeah. how we met. Yes, although all the way back to the hotel, Obama was enraged. I they heard he stole was my best line. I heard he was upset. I said, we're going to get to talk to 18 million people. That's probably a good, a good trade. And then you uh, know that... But, 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 but tell, tell them about what happened after. And <laughs> Years later, after I was in the Senate office, um, we were hanging around one day reminiscing about the uh, 2004 convention. And Obama turns to Gibbs and he's like, and do you remember that kid that came in and asked me to take the line out? And I was like, that was me. He's like, what? He's like, I never hired you. So uh, you talked about Carrie and to the extent there was a message. What, what did you learn as a kid in that campaign? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was so, I was, you know, I was 22, 23 years old. And that campaign ended, and despite being that young, I was, I became deeply cynical about politics. Um, partly because I really, I liked John Kerry. I thought he had a good story to tell. I really respected his service. And in the primary, sort of like detected 
this really good, strong message and story about his service in Vietnam and the band of brothers he traveled with and how he was connecting that to how we need to stay together as a country. And This is how he won the Iowa Iowa caucuses. caucuses. Yeah. yeah. And once the general election started, I just remember being in D.C. and like, you know, 15, 20 consultants descending on um, the campaign headquarters, a lot of them from the Clinton years, and um, every message became sort of sanded down and stale, and he was always worried about what he was saying, and the speech writing process was always a disaster. Um, and I just thought to myself, and then, and then also watching what the Bush campaign did, and how they did the swift boat veterans for truth, and so, so between the politics on the other side, and sort of the mess of the politics on our campaign, I thought, like, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is for me anymore. Um, and I, uh, I left that campaign. I, I drove home to Boston, moved back in with my parents. They, all, they were all excited. They thought I was going to finally go to law school. Um, and then I got an instant message from Robert Gibbs who said, uh, I hear you're a speechwriter now, and, um, you know, Barack Obama is looking to work with someone. And how did you... Did you have any moment of reluctance because of the Kerry experience, or did, did you instantly see something uh, in Obama that was different? Well, I, I was on the floor that night of the convention speech, mm -hmm. and I had been one of the few people like you guys who had read the speech first. And it was a pretty great speech when I read it, but when he delivered that speech, I had never remembered feeling like that in politics ever. I mean, everyone says that, but I was sitting there watching it. and So I thought that was amazing. After Gibbs reached out, the first thing I did was I read Dreams from My Father. Mm -hmm. And even more than the 04 convention speech, reading Dreams, I thought to myself, if someone who writes this honestly um, thinks that he's going to now be in national politics and make it, I want to be part of that and see what happens. So we talked about this earlier. You guys developed um, an incredible relationship, writer to principal, yeah. and really writer to writer, because Obama, you know, I, I think people think we're just kidding about this, but, or that we're lavishing praise on the big man, but he really was the best writer in the group. Yeah, um, and he appreciated good writing. And you guys had this kind of uh, vibe. Yeah, how how did that develop? I mean, I think look, it's not like our our backgrounds are very similar. Um, but even in that, I mean, you, you, well, you, you can you're from Kenya. I'm from I'm also from yeah. Kenya. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, so no, but in that in the first meeting we had uh, the the job interview. You know, he, he basically started with from the questions you were just asking me, like, how'd you grow up? How'd you get into politics? What was college like? And when we started talking about um, the Jesuits and social justice and the community organizing that I had done in Worcester and yeah. what he'd done, like, there's sort of a, we sort of share a view of politics and what politics can be and how it should be grassroots and about organizing. And I think that sort of helped us gel. Um, but then it was just a lot of work on my part. Like I, 
you know, I mean, I had dreams for my father, so I knew how he thought. Um, when I got to the Senate, he was writing Audacity of Hope, so I kind of saw him write that book and saw his thought process through that. Furiously and Fur- fast. Yeah, staying up till three in the morning, yeah. coming in tired, you know, <laughs> giving us a chapter to edit. And, um, and then I just went to every single town hall he did as senator. I read every transcript he did of every interview. Um, and then before every speech, I would sit down with him and just... Um, ask him his thoughts on the speech and I would type for 20-30 minutes on every single thing he said and it's just practice you know and then after a while you sort of develop this vibe yeah but it's also an appreciation for the interplay of words yeah um, I, I've you know I, I, I've said to you before I know you have a musical background and that you play the piano and, yeah um, there is a melody to words. There is a cadence to words. One of the interesting things about working with Obama is um, that he would move words around because of the sound of the words as they played against each other. I'm sure Trump does the same thing. <laughs> but During the, in the tweets, he does that. <laughs> yes. Make sure the 140 characters are just yes, right. Yes, he, he wants it to hum. Uh, and it's how you use the caps, I think, is the key. But, uh, uh, but that, that, that's such an important piece of it, is, yeah. is sort of, you know, th- there's a, there is a musicality to a great speech. There know? is. And I, it's funny, I grew up, you know, I, I loved reading when I was a kid. I loved storytelling. I loved writing. I almost had to unlearn some of what I did about political speech writing when I started with Obama because, you know, on the Kerry campaign, and it's not just John Kerry, it's most politicians, um, speech writing was about a collection of applause lines and sound bites and, like, what the press would pick up. And it was about, like, sticking them all in the speech and jamming it all together like that. And His his were arguments. His were arguments, right? And and sometimes we got in trouble for that because people would say, oh, there's nothing really quotable. Where are the applause lines? Where's the applause line? Several pages without applause lines. Yeah. uh, Jeff Zeleny, uh, who is at CNN now, used to, he was at the New York Times then, or Chicago Tribune, I think. He would always email me before a speech and he would say, what's the etched in stone line from this speech? And I would always have trouble answering him because... We didn't Did write. You say, how big is your stone? <laughs> yeah, right. We didn't write for specific lines because yeah. Obama always wanted to make sure that we fit the story together and the argument first. Yeah, and sometimes that was problematical. Yeah, you know, we we always just to say he was. We don't want him to go biblical, you know, and start from the beginning of time. Yes. And leading up to where we are today. Yes, there were many and speeches it, about the very beginning of globalization and how everything, how it unfolded over two decades. We. Uh, <laughs> You know, we were talking uh, before we started recording about uh, uh, your encounters with young voters mm. and their skepticism uh, about politics today. Uh, and, um, and it caused me to think back to the speeches that we worked on together in the 2008 campaign that were really an assault on politics as usual. Uh, it, they were really a dead-on assault on the cynicism of politics that sort of weighed every word, uh, you know, with respect to how it might affect the next election, you know, rather than speaking to the challenges of the next generation and so on. And all of the cynical elements that yeah. disquieted you uh, in 2004, 
it, it seems like those themes are like more necessary today than ever. Yeah, I mean, look, I always think about um, in Obama's announcement speech, and you remember this, there was that paragraph at the end, I can remember it, that we all wrote towards the end, and he, he did most of it. And it was, you know, I know that every four years someone comes to you with plans and policies and promises, and then they go to Washington and nothing gets done, and we just move on to the next campaign. And that's why this campaign has to be different. It can't be about me, it has to be about you. Um, and I, I do think that the, what I've learned is the only answer to that cynicism is not some one individual politician who's going to come save us. And I try to tell young people that all the time because they're like, who do you like in 2020? Who's the, you know, and it's like, look. We'll get to that later. We can get to that later. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it's really not about that. Like, I think if Obama taught us anything, it's that, you know, and he tried to tell us this for eight years, that it's not about one person, right? It's even, even a really great president who you believe in strongly, who, who fights for everything you believe in, um, they're not gonna fix everything. And politics has to, politics is an everyday struggle. And being involved in politics is an everyday struggle. And you know, I was just telling the crowd last night in, um, here in Austin at, at our show, because someone asked, you know, how, how long is it gonna take to repair the damage um, from Trump if, if we you know, get defeat Trump in 2020? I'm like, look, that, that question presupposes that if we defeat Trump in 2020, we can all go back home and we can all live our normal lives again and we can then maybe just vote again in a couple years, but we don't have to worry about politics until then. And if there's any silver lining to this crisis of a presidency, it's that hopefully it's you know, awakening a lot of people and especially young people into believing that you gotta be in this for the long haul. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a big challenge. You know, I run the Institute of Politics. I started that after the 2013 election at the University of Chicago. And what I see every day are young people who understand that they have a role to play in the world, yeah. but they don't necessarily see politics as a way to make real change happen. They, they, they talk about creating apps and they talk about um, listening to Pod Save America right. and all that. <laughs> but they, uh, but uh, you know, and I always make the case that Congress is going to meet with them or without them. And Congress is going to do things and legislatures and governors and mayors and presidents uh, that are going to impact directly on the equities that they care about. And they can either turn away from it and cede that or they have to turn into it. Yeah. Like, do, do you want to make the decisions that are going to affect your lives and your kids' lives? Or do you want some stranger to do it? Because it's going to happen. <laughs> And so as, as disappointed as you are, as cynical as you are about politics, you know, it's, it's the only game in town. It's what we have. Um, I want to say to my colleagues that I, am, I could talk to John Favreau for hours, so I need you to be, signal me at a, appropriate intervals so that people can get on with their days. Um, <laughs> but, um, y you know... Um, I'm not exactly um, objective on the subject of Barack Obama. I never pretend to be. Mm. Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about the things that you most remember uh, and that were most important to you mm -hmm. uh, over the, I guess you were there for 
six years? Is that? Yeah. Well, I got, I got there in 2009, and I left in 2013, March of 2013. Okay. Over the course of those years and after, what are the things that uh, most stick in your mind? And are there things that you think were shortcomings, things that could have been done differently that may have uh, contributed to the situation we're in now? Yeah. I thought about this a lot. That was a euphemism. <laughs> um, I, 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 mean, I'm, I know this answer is the same for you, but what was most important to me was, you know, I'll always remember the night that we passed the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Um, and I cried that night. Yeah, me too. And, and look, I mean, health care was one of the issues that I cared most about in politics since I was in college. Um, and... To see that happen, you know, I, you've told the story too. Obama always said, yeah, "Election night was great, but that was yeah. only the chance to bring about change." And, yeah. and healthcare was actually the change. And so, to me, that connected the dots for like all that effort, all that hard yeah. work, and that meant that even though it wasn't a perfect law, now people's lives were going to be saved, and we actually were going to do something. As you know, I have a child with chronic illness, epilepsy, and uh, we went through hell and almost went bankrupt because of it when I was a young newspaper reporter. And I, I sobbed that night because I knew that there were people who wouldn't have to go through what my family went through, and it made everything real. You're absolutely yeah. right about that. So let me ask you a question about this, because I've been thinking about it a lot. Sure. One of the things that bothers me about our politics right now is absolutism, mm. this notion that, you know, compromise is not a good thing, and uh, we're going to hold our public officials. And I understand the impulse because there is a sense that everything gets watered down in Washington, that there are players at the table who shouldn't be at the table, and that politicians make decisions that are more in the interest of their reelect than uh, the public interest, but I think about the Affordable Care Act, and you remember this, there were many people on the left, probably people who listened to your podcast, mm. uh, who said, do not pass the Affordable Care Act because it didn't have a public option. Yeah. And I, I was all for a public option. I'm for single-payer health care. I think that would be an important thing to do for this country, to get in step with everybody else uh, and to make uh, health care an absolute uh, right. But uh, I look at these people who I meet all the time who are helped by the Affordable Care Act, and some of them come up with tears in their eyes because their lives were saved by the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. What if we had said no? What yeah. if we had said, you know what, this is good, this is progress, but it doesn't have a public option, so we're just not going to do it. How would we face those people? And it just reminds me that um, you have to that progress doesn't come all in one. Right. But that's not a satisfying answer, uh, I suspect, to some of the folks who listen to your yeah. well, what show. I, what certainly I on the right, you hear a lot of this, no compromise, no right. give no quarter, and so on. I get a lot of, um, not that, I don't get a lot of, you shouldn't have passed it. I get, you know, why didn't you guys push harder for the public option? And my answer for a long time has always been uh, because of Joe Lieberman. <laughs> um, and we didn't have the votes for it, right? And then I talked to someone um, recently who had been in the Senate then, 
And he said, um, yeah, but the question is, obviously by the time you got to Lieberman, you know, you didn't have the 60 votes, but look what Trump just did, tried to repeal the ACA through reconciliation, passed a huge tax cut through reconciliation, which is the process you only need 51 votes instead of 60, it's the budget process. So what if you guys, and instead of trying to do this whole drawn out bipartisan process where you're waiting for Max Baucus and everyone to go yes. through the committee, you guys had just started at the very beginning saying, we're going to do this thing through reconciliation, public options on the table, we only need 51 votes. He's like, he goes, ask yourself if the Obama of 2015 or 2016, who was very bold by the time he left office, might have gone back and thought to himself, maybe I should do that. Yeah, and I no, wonder it's, a, that. it's I an interesting question. question. There is a technical question about what you can and can't do through right. uh, reconciliation. And ultimately, the Affordable Care Act was, elements of it well, were that, passed yeah. through budget reconciliation. But it does raise the question of, are we going to continually lower the bar here? So, you know, now we have Supreme Court justices who can pass with just a majority vote. Are, are we going to just obliterate these sort of institutions? I, that to I, me is the hardest question. Yeah. I don't know. Because like I, I, I've been thinking about this. If we take over the Senate in 2018 and there's a vacancy, like are we, are we going to let another Neil Gorsuch on the bench when we have the ability to do what the Republicans did and hold that seat open until we have a Democratic president? No, I think this is my concern. Once you use these tools that way, it's very hard to go back. Right. It's hard to go back. This has been my argument about impeachment. You know, I've been pretty critical of the Steyer ads yeah. on impeachment because impeachment, it seems to me, should be an extraordinary tool, uh, not a tool to get rid of even a, you know, a, a deeply obnoxious and flawed president, but someone who is actually guilty of something and there's an investigation going on and impeachment talk should wait for the result of that yeah. investigation because if you don't do it that way you're creating a precedent and now every president is going to face the threat of impeachment right. uh, and that's to me you know you're serving a death spiral for democracy yeah i mean look we can like we can all say, oh, Trump's committed impeachable offenses, but, you know, we're also, like, in an age where everyone fancies themselves an expert. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, we actually need a process. Like, we should say, if we take over the House and the Senate, we're going to finally do the investigations into the president that this Congress has refused to do. And we're going to see what Bob Mueller comes up with. And if there are impeachable offenses, which many of us believe there might be, then we can move forward. But yeah, you obviously have to, you have to have the investigation, you know, because we can't be in this world where we just sort of, you know, try people on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, or, or even Facebook. <laughs> um, so I wanna get back to that question I raised uh, before, because I think a lot about this, and I mentioned to this, you, uh, this to you earlier, um, I appreciate, uh, you know, all the things that Obama did in his second term on Iran, Cuba, uh, you know, uh, climate change. I mean, just big historic uh, things. But as I ran through social justice issues, gay rights, uh, so many things that uh, were done. But as I, um, you know, I've, I have a home in rural Michigan. Mm. And I have um, neighbors, many of whom had Trump signs in their yards. Uh, and not and most of them are not sort of toothless, ignorant racists as the caricature mm -hmm. uh, is offered. 
Um, but I thought about the, the, the main things that people took away from the second term, and I thought, I wonder what my neighbor, wh which of those things meant something to my neighbors in southwest Michigan. Now, I know that they, the president worked on issues like overtime pay and so on that were meaningful, but they weren't because the other stuff crowded it out. They weren't the message of mm. the administration. And I wonder whether the absence of a pronounced economic message that spoke to the, the pressures that people were feeling in this digitally divided yeah. uh, world uh, were not part of setting up what we saw in 2016. Yeah. Well, I remember you and I having these conversations uh, right before the reelect in 2012. And, you know, we had done all these things in the first couple years, and he's trying to stop the bleeding from the financial crisis, and then we pass health care, and we do all these other things. And I remember you thinking, like, we, we've sort of lost the thread on the central economic message. And then 2012 becomes this forcing mechanism for us because we have to run a campaign to get back to basics. And he does that speech in Osawatomi um, where we say, you know, inequality is the defining challenge of our time. Economic inequality is the defining challenge of our time. And, and that was even before we had Mitt Romney as an opponent. But we knew what that message was going to be in 2012, and it helped organize the entire White House and the entire yeah. administration it around that economic message. It actually began with a speech he made on jobs to the, to you know... The uh, job speech, yeah. Obama bottomed out in the summer of 2011 when the debt ceiling was almost breached. He had to make a, uh, this agreement with Congress. Um, came out in the fall, and this was all through discussion and, yeah. and just focused on these issues. That speech in Kansas was where Teddy Roosevelt had made, given his new national. That was big. Yeah. Uh, but it was a sustained economic message from September of 2011 to November of 2012. It seems to me that whatever our differences on other issues, these economic issues are unifying issues. Yeah. And you can't lose them if you're a Democrat and expect to win. Look, I think, that's the, I think that's the central challenge for Democrats moving forward. We talk about this all the time um, on our pod, which is we, we believe that this tax cut is something that Democrats sh should campaign on and campaign against. And, you know, it's an example of Republicans favoring the very wealthy at the expense of everyone else in the country. Um, and the trick is going to be figuring out a way to keep that message in the headlines in the midst of the uh, Trump show <laughs> that we all live in. Yeah. And that's hard. And I don't know that anyone's figured that out. I mean, you, you, know, you talk to the Clinton campaign, and they're like, we had an economic message. And um, you know, they always tell this story. Right after the convention, uh, we, Hillary did this bus tour in West Virginia. And every single day, she had a great local headline about her economic message. But nationally, all anyone was talking about was Trump attacking Khazir Khan. And the Clinton campaign had to respond to that. And they should have responded to that. They can't not defend that. But then when you're a campaign, so fast forward to 2020, when you're running against Trump and he has his crazy tweet of the day and he attacks, he says something offensive, he says something racist, he says something sexist, how does your campaign make that day about jobs? <laughs> yeah, because he's a genius at sort of hijacking 
the the story. Yeah. Um, so you're so the 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 uh, aforementioned John Lovett wrote a satirical piece mm -hmm. in August of 2015 in the Atlantic Am I gonna have called to answer "Looking for this? Backward on the Presidency of Donald Trump," and it started with it was the terrific leader of. Uh, of India, Gandhi, who said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they attack you, and then you win. Well, we won, didn't we? That's how President Donald John Trump began his inaugural address that clear morning in January of 2017. The fact that Gandhi never said these words was among the very least of our problems. <laughs> Besides, the line drew rapturous applause from the crowd. According to a joint statement released by the White House and Nielsen, the Trump inaugural drew the largest television audience in human history. Uh, as President Trump himself pointed out in his second press availability of that afternoon, the numbers would only go up once you factored in DVR. <laughs> so that was... Not too, too far off. No. So, so you guys, and I confess I was not I, I, ahead of the curve on this. What do you think happened? What happened? Um, yeah, so I uh, obviously did not uh, predict the outcome of the general election uh, very well, but I did early on in the primary think that he would win. Um, and Win the nomination. Win the nomination. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, you know, we'd, we'd beat him in the general. But we, I was also one of those people, that it was, it was a, when we were getting close to him winning, I was not excited for a Donald Trump candidacy in the general because I thought, yeah, she could beat him in a pretty big way, possibly, but we're also like playing with fire here. And I also thought like, he's just gonna drag the country through something awful. Um, and so I did not want him to be the nominee, but I thought that he might. And the reason, one of the reasons is, when I saw him on that debate stage with all of those other Republican candidates, um, he stood out not just because he was offensive and said crazy shit. He stood out because all of them, almost to a person, were on their talking points, had their canned lines. Much less what we were saying before about what makes people cynical about politics. That's right. And he presented something different. And they seemed like politics as usual. Every one of them. I think authenticity is a leading indicator in presidential races. And like whatever you think about Donald Trump, nobody ever says, gee, I wish he'd speak his mind. <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's not the problem. And yeah. that was a problem for Hillary Clinton. There was yeah. this sense that she spoke in these perfectly calibrated political words that were spat out that's, you know, of some computer somewhere that factored in all the polling data. And I, I think it, it, it really was a, a, a devastating contrast. And I, I think that no politician can afford to sound like that ever again if they want to be successful in politics. I mean, it is the media age we're in um, because platforms like Twitter and Facebook and everything we see, you sort of see and hear from people in a very personal, intimate way now. And you don't, and so all of those barriers are sort of broken down. And so if you're talking to people all day long, even strangers on the internet, who just you're having a conversation with, and then this politician comes around and starts saying like, I'm here to fight for the middle class. <laughs> um, it sounds bullshitty, yeah. even if the person's genuine. And so I, I really think that politicians in both parties need to completely rethink the language that they use uh, to talk about politics. I mean, my, my pet peeve is when we, Donald Trump's Twitter account is obviously garbage and possibly a danger to the world, but 
I also don't like the, the Twitter accounts from politicians where they just treat it as like a press release from their office and their press secretary is just like sitting there typing up a tweet about some issue that's not in the news just because they're trying to push a message. A message. I, I don't think that works either. So I've interviewed a bunch of folks. I've had conversations like these with a bunch of folks whose names have been mentioned as potential candidates for president. I know you guys yeah. do that as well. Who among the people you've seen um, is not talking in those kinds of uh, politically calibrated phrases? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Jason Kander, who you know has the pod yeah, with us, exactly, and yeah. he's also you know he's uh, that's he's young. Full disclosure. Full right disclosure. Yeah, yeah, Crooked Media Pod. Um, but you know, first millennial politician, right? So that has said something about it. Um, I think Deval Patrick. Um, you former know, governor of Massachusetts. former governor of Massachusetts. Yeah, um, I think Kirsten. Do you Jill think on, on on Deval? Do you think um, that it is a burden for him that uh, that he is this very inspiring, unifying African American candidate? Is he too derivative? I've heard that said. I don't necessarily believe it. I don't think he's too derivative. I worry about um, in our party um, him being at. Bain. Bain, I think that to me Doing is the most. That's, and he was that's a general counsel for Texaco and right. I think that'll. Coca -Cola. I think that's an issue. Um, I think Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, when I've heard her speak, it, it you know she's she talks like a normal person. <laughs> um, Chris Murphy, I really like. Um, so I'm trying to think of others. But look, I mean, you always say this. When I'm asked about 2020, I'm like, there's no one right now that really stands out to me but you can't really tell until these people go through the rigors of a campaign. Like we actually have to see them all on that debate stage together and see who stands out. And not it's gonna in a Trump way. going to have to be a pretty sturdy debate stage. There I are know. a whole lot of them. <laughs> and it's going to be and, it, and they're going to have to figure out who stands <laughs> out. And it should not be who stands out in a Trump way. And I also think if they're all competing with each other to figure out who can say the worst things about Donald Trump that's not going to work either, because that doesn't work for our side. The person on that debate stage um, who's going to stand out is someone who speaks to the anxieties and the hopes of the American people in a way that sort of starts breaking down that cynicism that we talked about. I, well, I really believe that. On that score, you were talking about the economy before. And no doubt, there's a, there's a populist critique of the, uh, of the Trump uh, tax cuts that is a, a worthy discussion. But it's also true that there are these big forces going mm. at play right now that are really roiling people's lives, that, and they're being driven by technology. We're losing four or five jobs to robots and computers, not China and Mexico. Yeah. And uh, there was no real discussion of that uh, in the last campaign. You think about the debates and so on. You know, uh, Trump's message is very you know, we're going to restore coal, we're going to restore... It was very backward-looking, uh, but there was no forward-looking retort to it. Uh, and it seems to me that an honest candidacy needs to address that. It, you know? Yeah, oh, for sure. And I think not just address it, but address it in a way that seems big and bold and commensurate with the challenge. Um, because I think if you ask a lot of Democrats what the answer is, they'd say... 
well, we need better job training and, you know, we need to expand the earned income tax credit and raise the minimum wage and all the kind of stuff we've been saying forever. And these are worthy policy goals that would certainly I think help. all of them were in Hillary's platform. I'm sure they were. But I think we need to think about, like, is there something like a jobs guarantee program where we're thinking even, I mean, or people have talked about universal basic income. I, I, you know, I'm not as sold on that, but I do think... Um, Figuring out a way to guarantee every person who's willing to work a job in this country, whether it's we, you know, we know the sectors that are going to expand are healthcare because of an aging population. We're going to need more home care workers. Education is going to be something that's expanding. So there, infrastructure we could rebuild. Basically, this there needs to be a plan, though. Yeah, there needs to be, and it needs to be. It needs to be a big plan. It needs to be a big plan that is a big answer to what Trump is going to say, which is we get the jobs back by you know, tariffs on China, and also making sure that, you know, immigrants aren't in our country. So let me ask you about what you're doing. Mm. Uh, I remember when you guys went out to California and you had this notion that it'd be cool to put together a little TV show where you're all just kind of chatting. Yeah. And you went to like five, six, seven different places. And, and they, they all, all said, said, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no way people are going to buy this. Yeah, we don't we don't want that. And then while we were doing that, um, you know, I was talking to Bill Simmons, who I known for a little while, and he was starting The Ringer. He had left ESPN, and um, in Grantland, and he said so. We invited Dan Pfeiffer and I on for a podcast, and I hadn't listened to other podcasts except Simmons <laughs> at that point. And after that, he was like, you know, we're thinking about getting into politics. Why don't you and Pfeiffer do a a podcast for the uh, election? And I was like, yeah, sure, that'll be fine. I don't know if I can do a podcast, but we'll try it out. And then when Lovett and Tommy and I got rejected by everyone for our television show, Simmons is like, bring Tommy and Lovett on too. We'll do two shows. And so we did that for the election. And I Keeping loved it. Keeping it 1600. Keeping it 1600. And I loved it. Um, I had been, you know, Tommy and I had started a consulting firm um, after we left the White House. I was pretty bored of that. And what kind of consulting were you doing? We did speech writing. And like for message, corporate, some corporate, like a lot of tech startups, nonprofits, you know, uh, some celebrities, and it was fine. And it was not like I mean, because it was a small firm, we got to only work for clients that sort of like reflected our values. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was I was just I missed politics and I was sort of bored. And so the the podcast was this exciting way to get back into politics. But we thought, um, you know, Hillary would win, and this would continue to be a hobby that we had. And then when Trump won, um, I remember just thinking, He like, was right about one thing. He improved your economy. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I remember being, um, being on the phone the night of the election with my wife, uh, Emily, and she was in Florida because she was canvassing there and helping out in the last couple of days. And, um, and she was, you know, she was just like so upset. She's like, you know, what, what's going to happen now? What are we going to do? And I was like, I don't know, but it has to be something different. You know, like I can't go back to doing the job that I was doing. I have to like help fix this. So we decided to, you know, not only take the podcast independent and start it on our own, but start this company and try to figure out whether we could use a media platform to specifically engage people in politics. And so it wouldn't be enough to just have a show that's about politics. We wanna make, we wanna try to help organize people and to get them participating in politics. And that's been the goal of, of Crooked Media. And 
Would you describe what you do as journalism? Um, not really. <laughs> Love it would be mad. Love it would have said yes. Well, um, that's tough. He's not here. Look, there, so there's you definitely can say some, whatever you want. There's some journalism that is done. Um, we were very fortunate to hire Brian Boitler uh, from the New, who was at the New Republic, to be our editor at Crooked.com, and he writes pieces, and, and he's a journalist, and, and he brings people in, and so we do, there, and Anna Marie Cox is one of our contributors, and she's a journalist, so we definitely have some journalism going on. A lot of it is, is some of it is punditry, we're just analyzing politics for people. Um, we like to say, basically, our, our slogan is to inform, entertain, and, and inspire action. So part of it is we want to educate people about politics, because a lot of people who listen to us hadn't paid attention to politics before Trump, and now they're paying attention the first time. And so we're trying to kind of educate them about the basics of politics. And then, you know, we want to entertain people, tell jokes, make it fun to listen to. But then it's very important that, you know, I think with the new, it's not the media's job to tell people, okay, here's the story, and now here's what you can do about it. That's just the, the press cover stuff. But our, we think that our job is that every time we tell someone a story or talk about something in politics, we say, okay, if you don't like this, or you're upset about this, here's something you can do to change it. Whether it's, you know, vote for this candidate, or go knock on doors, or call your member of Congress. Um, and so I think that's, that's sort of the, you know, our, our spin on that. And, and what kind of, and I know you have a great following. Is it translating into action? Do you feel, can you feel those connections? Yeah, we can. I mean, I, probably the most inspiring event we did was um, the night before the Virginia election, we were in Richmond, and uh, you know we had Northam and the whole ticket on the stage. But what was most inspiring is in the audience, there were just about everyone was. They were all canvassers. They were all knocking on doors, and they were all. They kept telling us we were doing that because we listened to the pod, and you guys told us to do this. And um, and then a lot of them were uh, people running for the very first time for the House of Delegates, and. You know, there was an energy and enthusiasm there that um, it was really infectious. Are you optimistic based on what you've seen? I know you're doing these big shows all over the country. Yeah. Are you optimistic about the fall from a Democratic standpoint? I am optimistic about the fall. Um, and look, it's tough to tell if it was just, you know, crowds and enthusiasm. But I think if we look at the special elections mm -hmm. and the 2017 elections and you 37 sort of, yeah. legislative seats have been tipped from yeah R to D. and virginia and what happened with doug jones you start to think that this and we've got one coming up uh in pennsylvania this week in pennsylvania presidents in the pittsburgh area today as we record this campaigning yeah for uh his candidate uh but uh that's a seat that he district he won by 20 points yeah but it, look, it's funny. I mean, I, he could I, lose that. They he could, could lose, lose that. it. Yeah. Um, I'm optimistic, but I have. I, we've said this so many times since uh, we started the company. We're out of the prediction business. But um, you know, last night at the event, uh, one of the questions was, "Can you just tell me, like, is Beto going to win? Is he going to win this thing? Do you think he has a chance?" And that was probably him asking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Look, I go. The media's job." is to analyze whether or not Beto can win. Our job is to make it happen. And there has been this confluence over the last 10 years where, and you I'm sure see this in focus groups and polls, voters become, have become pundits. And we watch so much 
television and watch so much television news and um, we start to act and think like pundits and so I'll re can this happen? Who's going to win in 2020? This, that. And that's fine and it's a fun game to play but if you do that too much you lose your own sense of agency to actually affect the outcome yourself. You know, uh, we're sitting, this being a podcast, our listeners can't see this big CNN <laughs> emblem. Yeah, right there. Here. But if Lovett were here, he, he was, he's been quite critical of cable television, of CNN and others, for having these panels uh, on which I sit uh, often, um, and uh, particularly, you know, giving uh, a platform to some of these Trumpers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I wanted to ask you, I mean, one of my concerns is you, you talk about informing people, but uh, I, I worry that we're sort of siloed off so that we all seek out media outlets that affirm, not inform our points of view. Right. And that if you don't have any sort of interaction between people of opposing points of view, and I don't mean the crazy screaming stuff that you sometimes see that is you know, not very worthwhile. Right. Uh, but, you know, Jeffrey Lord, who was, I, took a lot of, you know, criticism and yeah. when he was on last year, I, I think back, and he was, he was telling everybody, this is what's going on out there. Yeah. And he was right. Yeah. And that was worth something, you know? Yeah, I guess... Uh, Rick, people, Rick Santorum sits on these panels now. Yeah. He's... Pretty th he's actually willing to critique Trump, but he, right. he's pretty thoughtful in articulating what it is in voters that motivate their support for Trump. It, doesn't that have value? I guess, I guess I'm, when we try to uh, figure out guests and people say, you know, would you have Republicans on and all this, I, I always want to have, I mean, you know me, and this is part of the Obama thing too, I always want to have thoughtful, interesting disagreements about policy, um, and so we're, you so know, you have Republicans as long as it's your relatives from New Hampshire, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, I mean, like we have, yeah, we have a lot of uh, never Trumpers on no. the podcast too, and and we argue about things. And I've, you know, Tim Miller is one of our contributors, and he's a never Trumper, and we have fun making fun of Trump. But I have said to Tim too, I'm like, you know, it would also be great if once in a while you could come on and you could say why you didn't like the Iran deal and argue that with Tommy and we can argue about the Affordable Care Act and just see where that goes. Like, I think there is incredible value to that. Um, I don't think there's value in talking to people who have proven themselves to be so dishonest over and over and over again. And I think the problem with a lot of the Trump surrogates is that they have lied so much that I don't, I don't know if it's useful to have someone on where I'm going to say the sky is blue, they're going to say the sky is purple, and then there's nowhere else for us to go except just yelling back. And I don't forth know what happens them. when you put purple and blue together. <laughs> but, yeah. but so, you know, someone was like, "Oh well, you guys should have you know have Sean Hannity on the pod," and, and I was like, yeah. "What what use is that going to be? Like, Sean Hannity's going to come on the pod. He's going to say something crazy and some conspiracy theory. We're going to tell him he's wrong. We're going to yell at each other. We're going to try to like score points, and then nothing's going to come good. Come, you know, like maybe it's good ratings, but it's not going to." Well, listen, brother, I'm going to uh, exercise a point of personal privilege here and say I'm incredibly proud of you. Well, thank and you. I'm proud of what you guys are doing. And, um, you know, I think the great battle today is still between cynicism and idealism. And in a democracy, if idealism dies, 
then you've lost the essence of what it is. And uh, the fact that you're trying to encourage people to participate in the pro process, I think is an enormous public service. And um, so uh, thank I you. thank you for that. And I thank you for filling in for Lovett, who I will grab on another occasion, make him pay me back for not, <laughs> not coming. But so great to be with well, you. Well, I am, I am very lucky that when people ask me who my mentors are, the two people I talk about who are the most important mentors in my life are the greatest political strategists of all time and Barack Obama. And so that is... Um, I think Carl I'm, Rove will appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so, so I am John very, Favre. very lucky. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.